0: I'm down at the depot, climbing the steps on a big black southbound train. I hand them in my chicken, I I to
1: smart. You don't want me back again. The train's ready. Whistle mowing. Welcome, everybody. This is Claudia Shambaugh, your host on Ask a Leader, with my December 10th, 2013 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we have Mark Tabbert of the Citizens Climate Lobby to talk about... The group's laser-like focus, that's the Citizens Climate Lobby, their laser-like focus on the carbon tax will help you pass the quiz on what that all entails. Then we'll have Charlie Black back to talk about all those California State Senate bills aimed, yep, I said it, aimed at preventing gun violence. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. everybody. Thanks for joining us today. My first guest on Ask a Leader is Mark Tabbert, co-founder of the Newport Beach area chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby, about which we'll hear a great deal this morning. Mark graduated at Southern Methodist University and attended Claremont School of Theology, wherein he enrolled in a life-changing course called Earth ethics. We're going to be talking, minding that sensibility big time in this interview. Mark served in the U.S. Army in special services, and his first years of business were allied with sales in the steel industry, and later he became a self-employed broker in different fields, wherein he retired from a career as a business broker, buying and selling small and medium-sized businesses. An avid cyclist and a sailor, he's married and the father of three sons. He tried his hand at municipal politics in Newport Beach City Council race that he lost in 2009, but I dare say a loss that prepared him for other valiant aspirations like the Citizens Climate Lobby, that he co-founded the chapter here with Craig Preston in the Newport Beach area. With their focused brand of activism, they've contributed to this grassroots organization growing and doubling over this last year. Mark Tabbert comes to us today from the Yorba Linda Brea part of Orange County, where a new chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby is being established. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Mark.
2: Oh, thank you, Claudia. Great. Thank you very much.
1: Well, let's talk first. The citizens' climate change was formed in 2007 in San Diego by Marshall Saunders, realizing the massiveness of the global climate change problem needed a, a headier response than what uh, typically comes from the grassroots organizational, uh, what grassroots organizations typically mount. So tell us about his vision, how he turned it around from uh, his results, uh, earlier work and lectures.
2: Uh, Claudia, he, he worked, he's recognized as a world leader with a group called Results, and they worked on the world hunger issue. And Results was able to take the U.S. budget for world uh, hunger programs from like $25 million to about $500 million over a period of years. And the pattern that Results followed is what Marshall decided to follow when he, when he formed Citizens' Climate Lobby. And the reason he got in this business is because he watched Al Gore's movie, uh, Inconvenient Truth, and he watched it four times in a week. And he thought about all the people that he had helped in the world hunger area that were going to suffer if we didn't do something about climate change. So he, uh, and he actually went to work for Al Gore's group, uh, uh, Climate Reality Project, at first. And what happened there, though, is he was convincing people to change their light bulbs and stuff, but he realized he was up against Exxon money and big coal money, and he decided he needed to to do more, and that's when he developed the idea of Citizens Climate Lobby.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so it's growing in leaps and bounds, and uh, the organization is uh, and – let's distinguish it um, as we've talked about this, you and I. Let's distinguish – what Citizens Climate Lobby offers differently from what uh, I've had a guest on with uh, 350.org as well as Forecast the Facts uh, with their various advocacies. What's different about what what Mr. Saunders is taking up and what you take up locally, Mark?
2: Well, you know, our name tells you a lot about what we do. We're lobbyists. So our number one goal is to meet with Congress and convince Congress to pass a revenue-neutral carbon tax. And to do that, uh, we have certain methodology to accomplish that. We, of course, set up face-to-face meetings. We also spend a lot of time with local newspapers, getting letters to editors published and op-eds published. And then, of course, we do a community outreach. So I meet with other groups and try to talk about the issue and get people educated and, and concerned in talking about solutions, uh, solutions as a citizen more than as a consumer. Uh, we've, we've reached the point, according to Al Gore and Bill McKibben and according to Marshall Saunders and, three, and uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, we're, ch- we're past changing light bulbs is going to be enough. We need a global solution. So, so we're lobbyists. Today I'm going to meet with uh, Ed Royce's office with three other members, as you mentioned on your introduction, um, and we'll be... Ed Royce is a, one of the Congress people, the congressman on the Republican side of the, of the House that really understands what a carbon tax is all about. Uh, we see him as actually a potential Republican hero in this cause. One of the first people that might open his mouth and say, "Hey, climate change is real, and we better do something about it, and a carbon tax is the best way to go about it."
1: Well, it's, um, while we're talking about uh, congressional leadership showing, burgeoning leadership, uh, especially in the GOP, which has, I, I think, as an orthodoxy, uh, sort of an underestimation of sorts uh, of the global climate change uh, phenomenon, that uh, Bob Inglis is a Republican from South Carolina, and I remember in hot in my backyard, Ira Glass's This American Life covered what Bob Inglis is trying to do with that orthodoxy. He understands, Bob Inglis does, that they're, uh, they're are a number of members of the GOP caucus that are supportive of taking up the leadership on behalf of the global climate change. So he he's uh, perhaps precedes um, Ed Royce. But we'll talk, Let's talk about that. It's been very difficult to get this um, neutral carbon tax uh, before uh, a real debate uh, in the, in Congress. So let's let all the listeners know what the carbon tax or the revenue-neutral carbon tax is all about, and it's, it's, a, it's an elegant solution. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I'm going to start by telling you that, there are four we, we have to have a government solution. Uh, individuals are not going to be able to do this by themselves. Uh, good-hearted people can't do enough to change Brazil and India and China and everybody else that needs to change that's not thinking about this issue. So we need a government solution, and there have been four things tried by governments. One was cap-and-trade, or one is cap-and-trade. Another is subsidies, where the government picks winners in the marketplace and tries to pick a good winner that will make a real difference in technology. The other one would be command and control, we call it. It's like the EPA setting rules and regulations to, uh, to influence how, we, how much carbon we, 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 we put off. Um, or we exert, I can't say the right word, Uh, we emit. But the last one is the carbon tax. And the carbon tax has been tried right now in about 14 different countries, Um, successfully in many countries. Um, So what a carbon tax does is it puts a price on pollution on an equal basis so that oil, coal, and natural gas all pays according to how much pollution they emit when they're burned. So therefore, coal, being the dirtiest, would pay the highest tax, and oil, next, and natural gas, being the cleanest of the three, would still pay a tax. That tax happens at the mine, the wellhead, or the port. So it's a one-time tax. It's paid by the fossil fuel industry, and that money is put into a big pot. And that pot of money is then recycled back into the uh, American economy on a per-household basis. The, so all the costs that we pay in our lives—not just not just gas and not just heating and home air conditioning and heating bills—energy is expense throughout our economy. So every consumer good we we consume has an energy component.
1: Right. So, it takes so every a-
2: Americans every price is going to start going up, and so the revenue neutral aspect of this tax allows people to adjust. And have money in their pockets to spend for their extra cost, uh, for, their, for the rising cost of energy. Two thirds of people under our plan—about two thirds, 60 to 60% to 66%—we estimate of people will break even or come out ahead on this equation. So they'll get more tax, more uh, dividend back then they'll pay an extra cost for energy.
1: And that's how the regressive aspect of the carbon tax is addressed. The credits return back to some households in a, a, a proportionate way to uh, Well, their- it's
2: returned to all households on an equal basis. So if you're a multimillionaire, you're going to get the same rebate or the same dividend check back as a person who uh, works in the construction field as a laborer. Yes. Uh, it's a per capita basis. That way you protect the most vulnerable people in society, um, we also the, the carbon tax has five different aspects that we recommend. One is it's a one-time tax at the at the source, that's called an upstream tax. Two is it protects the most vulnerable people in society by being revenue neutral. The third thing that has to happen is we have to set border tariffs up in the United States to protect imp- to protect American businesses from imports, so that if China doesn't follow suit or Brazil or anybody uh, any other country doesn't also establish a carbon tax, then they'll have to pay a carbon tax when they import their products to the United States. A
1: carbon tariff.
2: A carbon tariff, right, an import tariff.
1: Right, right, right. In
2: effect, it says, you know, we'll tax them here instead of having them tax in their own country. Uh, But the important thing to understand about the world is that they want American leadership on this issue. America is the one country, the most important country that's dragged its feet on climate change. The world is much better educated on, on the current situation with science and with solutions than is the United States. And so as soon as the Americans decide to tax carbon, we believe uh, that other countries will quickly follow suit. Um, every, everybody knows how to tax. Every country knows how to tax. And, so, and they can have their own form of tax as long as they're, as long as they're taxing for pollution that, that fossil fuels emit.
1: Well, it's, it was a little discouraging in Australia's recent election that the newly elected Prime Minister Abbott has—he's uh, recently dismantled the the, the carbon tax uh, institution set up in Australia. So, there, the, the blowback is—it's uh, not making the the one direction only in policy making, but um, I'm, I'm sure the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is going to um, learn from that kind of case study what happens with. Uh, reversal of those kinds of fortunes in one country, although Austria is not certainly producing as much of the, the carbon. Um Byproducts, the externalities, as we are here in the United States. So, let's talk then about what the citizens. Oh, let me just say, for those of you who just joined in, we're talking on with Mark Tabbert, co-founder of the Newport Beach area chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby, talking about the carbon tax and his organization, Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, making making inroads with the uh, growing this organization. Uh, admirably at great rates. Um, and we're going to talk now about the key ingredients around which the Citizens Climate Lobby guides chapters in their lobbying efforts. There's a whole toolbox like no other grassroots participants get.
2: Well, Claudia, Let's open before that up. I jump to that, let me just say yes. one thing about the Australian tax that you Please brought up. Do. There's two aspects of that. I, first of all, I want to congratulate Australia for trying to do something about climate change.
1: With Mr. Howard
2: and so that's great that's a great thing the problem with their they have a couple of things that make it difficult for them to be the leader on climate change one is that their tax they set up was not really a fair equitable situation it didn't tax all fossil fuels equally
1: uh-huh. it
2: sort of penalized the mining industry more than uh the coal mining industry more than it did oil and natural gas so that was one difference from the tax that we would propose and the other difference is that not being a world leader makes it difficult for them to lead on this issue A lot of countries have a carbon tax, and they can get away with it, but it's not quite as complete as the one we advocate for. And so a country that's a world leader, like the United States, uh, can do things that Australia cannot do. Um, So I'll leave it at that. And and, and to answer your question about our organization, I've been involved, Claudia, with uh, different nonprofits and environmental groups for probably 15 or 20 years at different times uh, in my life. I have never been a – and being a businessman, I really appreciate somebody that has a, a goal and a methodology to get to the goal. And, and Citizen Climate Lobby is that is a company – is a, basically a company that does that. For instance, every month we have one phone call. Right. It's everybody attends on the phone. It's a big conference call. And we have speakers like James Hansen and Bill McKibben that get on the phone with us for an hour and talk to us as we sit in our local groups. The climate change all-stars. We were the 63rd chapter in the United States in Canada. Now there are 110 chapters in the United States and Canada, and there are 43 different groups that are forming right now. So our group is growing, and these little groups, uh, like the group in Brea, will form a chapter soon, and they'll break off, and they'll have their meeting up in the Brea-Fullerton area. We'll, We'll attend this monthly meeting, and we'll get informed by some real experts. The other thing that we do on a regular basis is I have a leadership call. As a leader of a group in Orange County, Central Orange County, I have a leadership call every Tuesday afternoon at 5 o'clock, and I get to talk to the executive director of our group, Mike, um, Mark Reynolds, and Mark gets on the phone with us, because it's sort of asked, and we have a conference, conversation with him. He actually does that three different times on Tuesday afternoons. He, nice. I can join that call at 3, 4, or 5 o'clock on, uh, on Tuesdays. Um, and then every month we have an action plan. Yes. And I'd love to talk about this month's Let's, action plan. but this, So we have an action plan this month, which is to get an op-ed published in our local newspapers. So every newspaper across the country where we're associated with, for me, it's the Orange County Register for Pasadena and uh, Santa Monica chapters. LA They're Times. dealing with the L.A. Times. I'm right? They are trying to get an op-ed published that asks something of Congress and I don't want to get too long-winded on what that is. If anyone's curious about the detail of this action plan, you the can call. go to the, uh, to the website for Citizens Climate Lobby, and you, and you can just look under actions.
1: CitizensClimateLobby.org for listeners. dot yeah,
2: CitizensClimateLobby.org. Okay. And you look under resources or action or take, take action, you'll find quickly the, the September laser talk we have a series of laser talks, which is sort of quick answers to problems we face when we talk about this issue with people, be they ed- uneducated people or deniers or people trying to learn more. There's all sorts of different ways to approach these different people with, with quick, good answers, and, and all our answers, all our laser talks are footnoted. So this month's laser talk is that we every chapter has already contacted their Congressional, I've contacted six different, my group has contacted six different congressional offices in Washington, and we talked to the staff that we know, and we've met with most of them.
1: And, Mark, that's the the congressional delegation from Orange County.
2: Right, so we're talking with uh, Alan Lowenthal, Ed Royce, Loretta Sanchez, Dana Rohrbacher, John Campbell, and Darrell Issa's offices. Okay. And in those offices in Washington, we know the person handling energy, natural resources, um, and other, and actually, other there are other specialists that we talked to, in, in, including those two big ones. So we called them and we said to them, "Listen, this month on the 18th of September, Congress is going to talk about climate change for the first time in a long time, and and Congress is going to have a choice in, those, in this committee. This is the Energy and Power Subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, and they're going to meet on the 18th of September." If Syria doesn't slow them down but whether it's the 18th or sometime shortly after that they are going to meet about climate change and we want to and we're asking them this we're saying Congress listen instead of sitting around for five days and criticizing Obama's climate plan let's talk about climate real climate science and all and let's talk about solutions especially the solution of a revenue-neutral carbon tax well these people that we talked to in Washington they know they've been hearing how it. we feel about this because right. they've heard from us and we met them, most of them, as I've said. The exciting news I have to share with you right now, Claudia. Please. is Today, today at twelve thirty, I'm going to go speak to the Sisters of Saint Joseph, and the Sisters of Saint Joseph
1: in Santa the Ana,
2: mm-hmm. and they're in Orange, and they're going to make phone calls to follow up on our initial calls. So they won't ask for the staff member because that would be too intrusive, but they will simply call the aides that answer the phone in Washington, and they'll say the same thing. They'll have the copy of the laser talk, and they'll understand what they're saying, and they're going to serve uh, to help us try to get Congress to, to be a Congress and not just some kind of reactionary force that sits around and criticizes the other side.
1: Well, that's going to be an interesting reflex to overcome. And so, it, it, but it's a really sophisticated approach, laser-like, as I keep saying, and you say laser talks to, uh, to give everybody uh, resonating, repetitive talking points to, to pitch the necessity of leadership about getting a carbon tax. Instituted. And so you've uh, let's talk about some of your FaceTime with Eric Cantor while the Citizens Climate Lobby had convened this last summer in Washington, D.C.
2: One of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life is go to Washington this June. I almost sort of break up when I think about how exciting it was because I was there with 350 different CCLers from Canada and the United States. Greatest group of people I've ever sat down with. And they all brought, they're all on the same page with me because they've all they've all read from the same book, and they all know the same speeches and the same laser talks. And we were there, and we met with four hundred and I think it was four hundred and thirty-five different congressional offices. This is Senate and House people
1: plus the Senate.
2: Yeah, so we're we're talking to both. Uh, I met I met with Bernie Sanders' uh, PhD aide. I mean, very intelligent uh, professional. Um, and i met with 19 different congressional offices in, in those 3 days just like everybody else that i was with had similar meetings um, so, so i don't know if i'm getting off the let's point, let's talk it was about an eric event. we we did that once a year and and the and i and i never thought going to washington was that really worthwhile but now i recommend it to everybody if you're involved with a group like CCL and you make a trip to washington We're making a difference. The Republicans this year versus the people that went last year, the people that went two years in a row, they say this year the people in the Republican Party understand the carbon tax so much better than they did it even a year ago. And we've been going to Washington now in in force for four years. Uh, We can't go to the same hotel this year, next year, because we expect to double our numbers again, and we expect to have 600-some people there next year.
1: If not more, okay. Okay, well, tell us about Eric Cantor's learning experience and you offered him the book you were talking about, I think earlier was the case for a Carbon Tax by Dr. Xi Ling Xiu, right So um, tell us about what uh, his reception was, so we cannot he's the whip folks. he's number two in the in the Republican in control House of Representatives for the United States.
2: A young lady in Richmond, Virginia has been working on the Cantor office. For some time, I think over over two years, they've had nine local meetings with staff locally. They finally got a face to face with Cantor. And I, it's so um, Ellie is the woman's name. Yes, I don't know her last. I can Ellie Ellie Whitney. Um, she was hugged by Cantor at the end of the meeting, and he promised to read the book, "The Case for a Carbon Tax." Um, It was just an outstanding, you know. I I really can't talk about it too much because Ellie is a remarkable individual, and uh, and she's a she's one of those uh, she's just forced to be reckoned with in her own self.
1: Um, So she created a, a, a receptivity. Uh, yes. Of Eric Cantor, because not everybody—you didn't talk to everybody themselves. You talked to some of the aides of those. You're mentioning the 435 visits. So, to talk to Cantor, who's got a lot on his plate right now, that was that was a, a feat that Ellie El- Whitney had uh, pulled off. So it, it was important because he's the one who's going to be controlling when votes go up in which particular levels of you know of caucusing of 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 the law, uh, sorry, of the bill uh, discussion on committee and then on the floor. So that that was a major inroad. And whether, whether or not he's going to read parts of it or he'll have his staff outline, underline parts of that, I, I believe that getting that, that text in front of him uh, that um, he, he's, he's got to move only in one direction and that's forward.
2: It's a, yeah, it's a great thing. The latest thing real quickly that Ellie's yes. done is she's approached the tea party in her area okay. and met with them. And she's found great, uh, great camaraderie with these people because they love the idea of doing energy themselves in their backyards or their farms. She's sort of in a rural area of Virginia. And so these people love the idea of doing their own energy in their own backyards, green energy, of course, and selling it into the powers that be. So um, she's, she goes to Cantor and she goes to the Tea Party. Um, that's where we spend most of our time, to be honest, Claudia, uh, is with the Republican Party. Uh, we think the Democratic Party will follow us uh, and follow the idea fairly easily. We, there are already bills in Congress right now being discussed by Bernie Sanders and Barbara Boxer in the Senate. Uh, we're very close to getting something like that in the House along the lines of the carbon
1: tax. So with the the toolkit that Citizens Climate Lobby provides for any newcomers, on first starting with those introductory calls, listening in on it's 5 o'clock on Wednesday, Pacific Coast time, one can follow the progress made and get the the toolkit, get the monthly assignments because the assignments are given to the chapter and I imagine the chapter divvies up those projects, those letters to write to the op-ed section of the newspapers, appearances, uh, coalescing with more like reaching out to the, the St. Joseph's nuns and finding new groups. So the, then there are the, the monthly meetings. The next monthly meeting, tell us where the listeners can get a hold of of that schedule and the occasion.
2: Well Claudia, the, the call you're talking about on Wednesday afternoon, I would call the introductory call. So right. you can get on that call without signing up for the group. But after that call, if you like what you hear, They'll make it clear about how to do, how to sign up with a local group. Uh, our meetings rotate. I don't know where our October meeting is going to be. It's going to be October 5th. It's always Saturday morning. It starts at 930 with coffee and bagels. We have the conference call at 10. We t- discuss our action plan at 11, and we're done by 12. The Wednesday call, to register for that call, you go online. They'll invite you to that call. And you'll give, you'll give your email address, but I promise you this, I promise everybody listening, they will not follow you up with a bunch of emails. They'll send you one email to say, thanks for joining the call. If you have any more interest, your Orange County chapter is yada, yada, yada. They'll also send me a copy of that email, and I will also send you an email. So if you get on the introductory phone call on Wednesday afternoons at 5, any and any Wednesday, even over the Christmas holidays, they didn't stop. They were every Wednesday. Wow. So then you'll get an email from me. I'll invite you to come to our meeting. uh, and I'll answer questions that you have and give you my phone number and that kind of stuff.
1: So then the the meetings do change from place to place. But can how much of Orange County do we have covered here with the Citizens Climate Lobby chapters?
2: Craig and I started in central Orange County. It was in Newport Beach. He's in Costa Mesa. I'm in Newport Beach. Uh, Then we, we have a chapter that's developing in the South County area. And we have a chapter that's Uh, even a little further along up in Fullerton Brea.
1: Right, where you're Um, going to be setting up.
2: And so these, in fact, we had the Fullerton Brea people and the South County people still come to our central location. Uh, But we, you know, over time, as those groups grow, they're not going to want to all travel so far on Saturday morning. It'll be easier to have their meetings locally.
1: And so let's just, as we close up the interview... by the way, Claudia,
2: UCI could have their own chapter. I would love to talk to any student or faculty... Uh, about that because you could many universities have their own chapters
1: right and the, uh, uh, they're set up just and even though i think the high school is looking for uh, community service can easily the students can participate listen in on those wednesday 5 p.m. calls and uh, set up uh, projects uh, with all of their campuses besides the university. And then uh, let's, let's just quickly wrap this up with you telling us how applied your day is going to be today. You start with an interview on KUCI, and then there's yet three more items on your ledger. Well, I'm, going
2: to, I'm going to meet with the Royce people uh, today at 10 o'clock. I have to run up to, uh, to uh, Brea. And then I'm going to meet with the Sisters of St. Joseph at 1230. And then I'm speaking tonight in Transition at Transition Town in Laguna Beach, it's on St. Anne Street. Uh, I, I think it's a community church. I looked up the address this morning. I was trying to find it to be more specific. But uh, Transition Town is pretty easy to find out where they meet. Uh, it's a potluck that starts at 630. I speak at 645, and Q&A has to be finished by 730. Um, we're going to be talking solutions to that talk. Uh, I'm not going to be talking science because the people at Transition Town are well acquainted and they're believers in the science. There's no, there's no reason to rehash that with them. Right, and they want to talk about the different solutions. And I'll be representing there not only my group, CCL, which is my primary group, but I'm also a member of a chapter of 350.org. And I'm also a trained uh, in the Al Gore program at uh, the Climate, uh, Reality, Climate Project. Reality Project.
1: Right. Okay. So. Well, I just want to run past everybody. There's lots of resources that you've heard us drop and in the podcast. Some of course, we always put those in. But there's citizensclimatelobby.org for posting yourself on uh, at the next meeting, the next co- phone conversation. There is the case for a carbon tax by Dr. Ling Zhu. And Mark Tabert, I really appreciate he's co-founder of the – the Central Orange County Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, co-founder with Mr. Preston. And I wish you all the success because leadership is everything in getting the momentum up where it needs to be with our uh, compatriots in uh, most of the other developing countries in the world. So, Mark, thanks very, very much for being on Ask a Leader today.
2: Claudia, I can't thank you enough. Thank
1: you. Take care. We're going to be back in a few moments after uh, a station break. I'm going to have on Charlie Bleck, who's going to talk to us about the California State Legislature's Life Act. That's the Life Saving Intelligent Firearms Enforcement Act, now under consideration in the California legislature, which wraps its session this very week. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us here on Ask a Leader. My next guest here is Mr. Charlie Black, returning to Ask a Leader. Um, we're going to speak today about the California State Legislature, considering a host of legislation targeting the sale, use, and possession of firearms uh, in the Charlie Black returns to ask a leader to take this up with me this morning. He's the founding president of the California um, chapters of the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence, and he currently serves as the president of the Orange County chapter. He comes to us again from Laguna Hills in Orange County. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Charlie Black, and to Mary Lee Black, the other part of the husband-wife team of activists.
0: The most important part of she is not just the other part, Claudia. She's the most important part, she, and so she's nearby. I've been very privileged to be married to her for forty-five years now. And it's a and lovely it's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for asking me. Thank
1: you for being on, and it, it is lovely. As I've seen you at various rallies, how the two of you blend into the most earnest and authentic, resonating messages about. About how important gun violence prevention is, as you personally experienced that. We talked about it in the previous show. I am not pulling that scab off today, man. So today, we're it's the uh, it's a recall in Colorado. We're watching as two state senators, John Morrison and Angela Jerome in Colorado, they're fighting off a recall camp or two recall one for each recall campaigns as a result of their supporting gun control legislation that was adopted earlier this year, enacted that is, it's become a bit of a proxy battle between the National Rifle Association and the Koch brothers on one side and Mayor, New York City Mayor Bloomberg and L.A. philanthropist um, Eli Broad on the other. What is your sense of what's going to happen today, Charlie?
0: Well, it appears that the recall will not pass and it shouldn't. Um and I need to make something perfectly clear, Claudia. We, I personally, and we, with the Brady, don't have a quarrel with the National Rifle Association membership. We have found that they're good, decent citizens, and you also have to understand that there are four million members of the NRA, but there are 100 million gun owners in our country. So. They're only a 4% representative of the entire gun ownership. More importantly, the board of the National Rifle Association, which is run and funded by the gun manufacturers, that's the problem. And the gun manufacturers are in this for the profit margin. And that's wrong. They're, they're prizing money over the life and love of our loved ones. The silly part about this is Senator John Morris, who's the Senate president... Yes, He's termed out next year. I mean, he's basically almost in a lame duck status right now anyway. And Angela uh, was just a member of the committee that happened to vote for these particular measures. And they're not attacking the law itself. That's that's the silly part of this. They're not attacking the law itself. They're attacking a couple, of, uh, just a couple of members, and they're wasting Colorado taxpayers' monies in doing it. And for the special it's a shame. And right. It's a shame that those folks with the gun gun mem- that the gun manufacturers have that kind of money to throw around recklessly.
1: So that's that's what's happening. And along with that, then in the state of New York, the sheriffs' association uh, protests. I don't know about too much, but protest about New York's enactment of gun legislation, all these things on the heels of, of Newtown well, in Connecticut and Aurora really Colorado.
0: Because whether we like it or not, our federal constitution has now been interpreted by our Supreme Court to mean that a person has an individual right to have a handgun in their home for the purpose of self-defense. But in that particular ruling, Claudia, they also said that we can prohibit firearm possession by felons and mentally ill. We can prohibit, forbid guns in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings. We can regulate the commercial sale of firearms. We can ban dangerous and unusual weapons. We can regulate the storage of weapons to prevent accidents and so on. And all of what we've passed here in California together with New York and Illinois and Colorado and Connecticut and on and on, they're all constitutionally valid measures that do not impede or impair a, quote, good law-abiding citizen's ability to own and possess a firearm. It's just really silly on their part, and these folks are sworn to uphold the law, and they should.
1: But I'm finding curious is that the Sheriff's Association is on one mind and the the uh, police uh, organization seem to be the other. Can you reconcile that kind of uh, split decision there? Charter yes, Black?
0: we uh, run into the same thing here in California. We have the police who are in large population areas who deal with us. This- on a daily basis versus a sheriff's association that is more from a rural area that uh, and it's politically motivated. So even the sheriffs in California do not always come along with us when the California Police Chiefs Association supports our bills. And it's basically a dynamic of the population of the rural versus urban and the uh, the political side of it. And uh, that's where we are here, even in California.
1: Okay. For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live and all the gun shops and gun shows and uh, uh, their sit-ins here. We are uh, uh, pretending to gun uh, violence prevention on uh, KUCI.org. My guest is Charlie Black, who is the president of the Orange County chapter of the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence. Let us now move into the raft of bills that uh, have passed out of committee. They're on the floor now in the California state legislature, which is wrapping up their session. They're going to move it ahead of uh, the day ahead of the day that Yom Yom Kippur begins. So that means Thursday night, they want to wrap it all up. They took Care of the, uh, I think there was a, a negotiation of the correctional uh, bill here of what to do with all uh, the collision course of the. I
0: sure hope so, Claudia. <laughs> that that um, was a major elephant in the room that no one wanted to talk about that was affecting our uh, the progress of our bill. Of so everything. I'm pleased. More importantly, if I may, yes, it's please. wonderful that we're going to talk about these bills, but your listeners need to get a hold of their elected representatives, and the easiest way to do that is to go online and it's called find your rep all one word dot legislature dot ca dot backslash again find your rep dot legislature dot cal dot gov backslash That will put them in contact with who their elected representative is in Sacramento. And, Claudia, as much as we can talk about these bills, your listeners have to get involved and contact their representatives and let them know that they support the LIFE Act bills.
1: That is uh, going to be included, too, again, in our podcast summary. And uh, then once those letters are prepared and sent, those emails, then there's uh, the smartgunlaws.org forward slash tracking gives you an idea of where they are and whether uh, maybe a more persuasive uh, message needs to be sent to, to your representative. So what we have, as I said, there are seven bills. Let's begin with the Assault Weapons Law Reform Senate Bill 374, Simplifying and Strengthening Californians' Assault Weapons Law.
0: Yes, we, in the Brady campaign here in California, we always try to prioritize. All of these bills are important, but the Steinberg bill came out as a, one of our top priority bills. And basically what it does, Claudia, is it focuses on a key military feature uh, that would allow rapid reload and continuous fire of bullets. We have found with these killings like in Aurora, Colorado, that being able to reload and continually fire is a very dangerous and makes the lethality of the incident quite large. Um, Now, basically, with the detachable magazines, if we we prohibit that, I have seen videos of what it takes to reload a non-detachable magazine, and it is much more time-consuming. If I'm a hunter or I'm a sports shooter, that isn't going to be a problem for me. But if I want to do damage to somebody in a violent manner, in a large capacity way, that is very, very demeaning and and difficult for me to pull that off. So we're talking about numbers and we're talking about saving lives. And this is a top priority bill for us with the Brady campaign.
1: Well, as we talk about each of these bills, Charlie Black, can you perhaps you can also weigh in with where um you believe what's the prospect of its enactment is going to be in this case are you getting we
0: have we have a unique system here in california even though we have a super majority of uh, democrats in sacramento every year that we go in there we have a dog fight to try and get 21 votes in the senate and 41 votes in the assembly and then quite frankly Our governor has been inconsistent on how he's handled our bills also. So this is our assembly test today. Um, We believe we have the votes, but until they actually push 41 yes votes on the floor, uh, we have to hold our breath. That's why it's so important for uh, for your callers to contact their assembly members and let them know how they feel about this. Um, it... Even though the Democrats have a strong majority, um, we just—it seems to cross party lines. In fact, we have a Democratic senator here in Orange County, Lou Correa, who for over a decade has failed to support any of our uh, responsible gun policy. So it doesn't seem to matter if there's a D or an R after their names. We just have to go after them individually and let them know how important these issues are to us.
1: Well, if, if, since you bring up uh, Senator Correa, is there uh, some? reason that he has not found it um in him in his leadership role to support some of these uh, gun violence prevention bills
0: uh he has not really given us any kind of explanation other than he's not comfortable with the bills i just it's a true mystery for us however uh we, with the Brady campaign, uh, we can acknowledge that uh, Assemblymember Solario, when he was in the Assembly for six right. years and head of the Public Safety Committee, was a 100% supporter, and he has declared, because Senator Correa is going to be termed out next year, he has declared to become a candidate for that 34th Senate district. So right, we right. should keep an eye on that race also. The 34th. But let's, let's get back to the life bills yes. for now.
1: Okay, so now the second bill, the next one, I'm not the second, the Large Capacity Ammunitions Ammunition Magazine, Senate Bill 396, prohibiting the possession of the well, large...
0: This one is just critical, uh, Claudia. Okay. Uh, more than 12 years ago, we prohibited the uh, sale of the manufacture sale and importation of these large-capacity magazines. Unfortunately, that bill left out the word possession, and we only have to look to that tragedy with Gabby Giffords in Tucson where that shooter had a 30-round magazine, and when he went to reload, he was overpowered. But in the meantime, 19 people fell and six people died, and we just won't have that kind of numbers and that tragedy. We need to also prohibit the possession of these large-capacity magazines. We need to clean that bill up and... I remember, I'll, I'll go back to my old days when I was a poli-sci major in yes, college, which yes. was a long time ago, Claudia, and Barry Goldwater was a very conservative senator from Arizona, and he was famous for saying that if you can't bring that animal down in five shots, it, diver- it deserves to get away. And, Claudia, when we, when we I allow and we have these 30 and 50 and 100-round magazines, the only thing we're saying is we are... Tolerating the hunting of other human beings, and that's just plain wrong. Uh, We don't allow the sale, we don't allow the manufacture, we don't allow the importation. Let's also prohibit the possession these large capacity magazines they're military oriented they don't belong in civilian hands
1: I believe this really this kind of uh, the, the status quo really does distinguish us from most countries in the world I think people's eyes in other countries would pop out if they knew we were talking about putting the word possession into uh, into legislation like this that it wasn't already there so I, Exactly the centers exactly. moved in a strange You're way You are
0: absolutely correct
1: <laughs> Then the next bill is the assault weapon modifications it's a it's been a 2 year bill does that mean it's been now, two yeah, years Senator in the working He
0: decided that he had a lot of technical language in his bill, and Which, he wanted Charlie, to continue to fine-tune that technical language. So he has pulled that, and now it becomes a two-year bill. So if he wants to, he can come out in January and present that for the legislature to move on it quickly. Okay. But that's not on the table as we speak today. Senate
1: Bill 47, so everybody yes, knows ma'am. that name. It updates and it strengthens California's assault weapons law, closing the loophole for devices that enable the quick release and rapid reload. So everything's about slowing down the shooter uh, or yeah. or yeah. Rem- reminding all of us that wasn't the gun about hunting, not hunting people. No,
0: we're not talking about sport shooting. We're not talking about hunters. We're talking about the lethality of a rapid fire uh, firearm. And that's that's what those bills are focused on.
1: The next is Senate Bill 567, shotgun definition. What's that about, Charlie Black?
0: That's a very technical bill. We currently prohibit what they call the well, we have uh, shotguns and they are revolving with revolving cylinders. And currently, we prohibit, and uh, let me take uh, this, Is we prohibit something called the smoothbore shotguns. And then, what the gun manufacturers did is they created a new type of shotgun called a rifled bore shotgun, which is exactly identical to the smoothbore, but it's rifle bored. And therefore, they were able to move around our ban on making that an assault weapon, and this is simply a technical bill to clean up that particular uh, gun manufacturer's uh, way to evade our current laws. So- I mean, that's, that's our problem, Claudia, is we have the spirit, we have the law, and then the gun manufacturers look for a loophole so they can continue to make their enormous profits at our risk, and, and that's what we have to try and keep up with.
1: So the smoothbore, smooth bore then is a was vers-
0: always prohibited has has been prohibited by our current law and what the manufacturers did is they put together a process called a rifle bore shotgun which is otherwise identical to the banned shotguns that are now and they're now being, banifac- and they're being manufactured and they're not specifically banned. So, the- so this would be a technical bill to include those.
1: And the the difference is that one is going to be for a rapid, more rapid fire and more rapid sales. Actually,
0: they're identical, but one type was banned and the other was a way to get around that ban. So okay. we're just going to catch up with the technical advances of the gun industry.
1: Okay. The next is the ammunition purchase regulation, Senate Bill Fifty Three, requiring anyone wishes to purchase ammunition for the uh, first. They first have to pass the complete background check and become authorized to purchase ammunition by the Department of Justice.
0: Yeah, In California, we have an excellent program, which is unique to California. We are the only state that has something called APPS, Armed Prohibited Persons System. And what happens, Claudia, is that a person can purchase a firearm legally, and then later on they become a prohibited person. They're either convicted of a felony or adjudicated as mentally ill and so on. And because we have the records, we can go in and we can then take from that person who is now prohibited something they bought legally. Uh, Regulating sales of ammunition. Uh, Los Angeles did it. Uh, Sacramento, the sheriff passed an ordinance there and what the sheriff of Sacramento was able to do is he was able to cross reference people who bought ammunition versus people who were on the armed and prohibited list who should not have had guns and they're thinking why are you buying ammunition if you're prohibited from having a gun they were able to get warrants, they were able to do searches and they were able to put violent felons on probation back in jail we always hear the expression that Firearms don't kill, and that's correct. Bullets kill. So why not track the bullets, track the ammunition? We regulate firearms. We need to regulate the ammunition. Felons should not have access to guns, and likewise, they should not have access to the ammunition because they're prohibited from having these guns in the first place. This particular bill makes absolute sense.
1: All right. And then in another stroke here of working the prohibition angle here, Senate Bill 755, it adds to the list those misdemeanors that were carried out, that carry at least a 10-year prohibition for purchasing or possessing a firearm. So that would slow down that loop there of, I guess, recidivism in in discharging. I was
0: amazed when I saw the statistics, and it really educated me. 35% 35% of the inmates convicted of violent crimes reported that they were intoxicated at the time. What this bill does, it would prohibit the purchase and possession of firearms by drug and alcohol abusers, and those drug and alcohol abusers are defined by two or more convictions in a three-year period like a DUI. We know what the effect of alcohol and drugs are on our ability to think and our ability to analyze and how we react and our tolerance level and all of the things that go along with that education. You put a gun in that situation and it becomes terribly lethal, and this is an excellent public policy for prevention. We don't want guns mixed in with alcohol or drugs, and that's exactly what this bill would do. I'm a strong supporter of SB 755.
1: What's your read on this one's passage?
0: It had a slow start, but then, when we were able to educate the legislators about the statistics and especially the part about the thirty five percent of the inmates convicted of violent crimes, um, I think it has an excellent possibility of being passed, and I certainly hope so i 'm a thousand percent in favor of it
1: well, it sounds like it 's an acknowledgement of there there besides a mental health uh, uh, incapacity for gun ownership that the that drug and alcohol abuse is a, another disqualifier so it's sort of catching up with what's been uh, a, the confounding factor in uh, in gun violence not just in California but around the country
0: Certainly people under that influence just lose the ability to make rational decisions and that's when we have horrible deadly results
1: And Charlie the 35% of the inmates is that did you say in California or in the it's country In
0: California 35% of the inmates convicted of violent crimes in California reported that they were intoxicated at the time.
1: Okay. And is is there a national similar statistic, or is that known? I don't have that. It's probably probably hard for everybody to be keeping that kind of record. It is. It's difficult. Um, It is. So the next um, and the the last, I believe, here of this list of seven bills in the Life Act, it's the Senate Bill 683, Expanding Firearm Safety Certificates, uh, Expanding Existing Handgun Safety Certificate Program to All Firearms and requires any person purchasing a farm to hold a valid firearm safety certificate. Is that an uh, authentic Again, we're way? we're
0: talking common sense, Claudia. Currently, we require handgun purchasers to pass an objective written test involving safety standards and safety for firearms. We don't require that of people who purchase long guns, the rifles. No reason to exempt purchase of long gun buyers. Uh, bottom line is if I'm going to purchase a firearm I should pass an objective written test involving safety so that I know and we all know that that person buying that firearm understands how to properly and safely handle that particular consumer product uh, there's no reason to exempt long gun purchasers we do it for handgun purchasers we should have the same applicable law to long gun purchasers
1: well that that is the extent of that um, of the the LIFE Act bills, the that's called Life-Saving Intelligent Fire, Firearms Enforcement Act, then uh, they're on the floor. I don't think any of them, since I saw, uh, I checked yesterday, the L.A. Times covered that it's in progress. Uh, nothing new changed as of my leaving for the station. They
0: could begin starting voting as early as today. And as you mentioned, when we started the show, they have to be out of the legislature by this week and uh, on to the governor and uh, We're hopeful that all of these bills will pass because they're all interrelated and they're all life-saving. And what's really important, Claudia, is none of these bills are constitutionally invalid. They're there to protect all of us, including the gun owners themselves.
1: So is your sense from the... The, the hill that is in Sacramento, are they watching Colorado with some trepidation and it's making... Uh, I don't
0: believe so. I believe that our California legislation legislators have heard from their constituents and will continue to hear from their constituents. And, uh, I've been involved now for approximately 20 years, and it's amazing uh, that each and every year the Uh, gun manufacturers simply drag out the same old tired arguments against what we're doing, and I believe the folks in Sacramento are now used to those tired old arguments and want to look at the critical ideas in the bills themselves and will vote on the validity of those critical ideas. And as we've explained this morning, all of these bills are just good, common-sense, responsible gun policies that will prevent tragedies in the future.
1: And our, our are defensible in the most recent Supreme Court decision on on the second amendment and the there's the first step is about the uh, looking up online the findyourrep.legislature.ca.gov the second step would be letting the governor know and I just imagine just by uh your search engine, getting to the governor's office and sending an email, or I imagine that the O.C. Brady, um, I'm sorry, the Orange County Brady chapter can also uh, send people uh, along the way to letting the governor know, because that's no sure deal either, as you mentioned earlier, Charlie Black.
0: Uh, Unfortunately, he has been inconsistent, but we feel that there is such a strong Public policy for gun violence prevention in these bills that we're very hopeful and we're pleased that Senator Senate Pro Tem uh, Daryl Steinberg has headed this up. I think that's an extremely important uh, aspect of this. That uh, our in the, our members of the uh, legislature have taken ownership and created and moved these along, and they represent the strong majority of Californians.
1: Okay well Charlie Black it's such a pleasure to have someone of your caliber and the the training and thoroughness in covering all of this I I couldn't do it with anybody at all that can touch what what you've been doing. And to Mary Lee, uh, your partner in the non-crime activities here, I I thank both of you so much for being on Ask a Leader. And uh, I'll be be checking in on your website to see how things are moving along. Well,
0: we appreciate the opportunity, and we are thankful that you're reaching out to your community the way you do. And uh really you're our you're our sword. Without you uh you're our voice and we're very, very appreciative you, of all that you do.
1: You are the general in command in the field and I thank you so much. And my regards to Mary Lee, please. Thank you so thank much you for being kindly. on the show. You take care. Thank you. We're going to wrap this up today at the Irvine City Council. They'll be discussing the momentous land use issues that will forever shape Great Park. This will be followed by a specific proposal, finally, to move Irvine's next high school from the Irvine Boulevard site near the Music Jail, that's Site A, to the western sector of the Great Park, that's Site B. It includes an action item. So the motion to have the City Council make a specific offer of nearly 40 acres of land within the Great Park in order to provide a superior site for the school district to build Irvine's new high school. So that'll be on today at the Irvine City Council. Monday, next week, the 16th, the whole day from 8 to 630 uh, at the Hyatt Regency in Irvine, the Cleantech OC will present their annual conference and expo with information available by calling or emailing scott kitcher, scott at cleantechoc.org or 949-585-2988. Next week, I'm going to have Dave Nywert, author of and Hale followed with her about the border frontier land between the U.S. and Mexico. Then we'll cover the upcoming 24th Annual Southern California Alzheimer's Disease Research Conference presented jointly by UCI and the Orange County Chapter of Alzheimer's. So presentation this year in Costa Mesa, the whole day, too. That September 20th, 8 to 5. We'll cover all that next week. Talk to you with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>